Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst, Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey, everybody. It's Eric alongside Rod here again. Welcome back to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. Before we start, I just wanted to offer some thanks to some one-time gifts via, via PayPal from Jim Gray and also Venmo from Celeste Mutronowski. Apologize. Sorry, Celeste. Uh, thanks so much for supporting the show. And again, if you like the show and like what we're doing and what we're providing without a paywall to all the Spartan fans, please be sure to go to tffinots.com slash support. Or if you're not the lazy type, the final four is not in the schedule.com slash support. But we're delighted to welcome today our uh, returning guest, Noted Lansing State Journal columnist, sports columnist, Graham Couch. He was on a previous episode earlier this summer, and we're going to talk a little bit of Michigan State basketball, obviously, and just, I think, basketball in general. And so thanks so much for coming on, Graham. Appreciate it. No, my, ple- my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yep. He stars also, as a reminder, on the podcast Spartan Speak and also The Couch in the Room, where he plays the role of Couch. And I highly recommend both podcasts. They're very entertaining and uh, ones that I list have on my subscription list. Well, let's get right into things here, Graham. Uh, we're going to talk about Michigan State first. And, you know, one of the questions going into the season and things that I think people have been talking about is a depth issue for Michigan State because, you know, they lost four players. They brought in two and then kind of got a redshirt f- freshman who now, or a redshirt who now looks like he's not going to redshirt, which is not surprising with the departure of Julius Marble. Um, and there's been an issue like that they're going to have a depleted roster. I mean, when I look at it, I feel like we still have nine or 10 that we're going to be playing, which is pretty typical for a year, I think, uh, you know, with Walker, Hogarth, Aikens, Brooks, Hall, Hauser, Sissoko, Kohler, Carter, and Holloman, and then, uh, you know, maybe Jason and Jason Whitens. Do you think the depth issue is going to change much this season, or do you think it's going to be pretty much like normal for Izzo with his rotations? Yeah, in some ways, as somebody who sometimes thinks he plays too many guys, I think this will... <laughs> This will help that because there just won't be too many guys to play. Yeah, as long as they're healthy, I don't think there's depth issues at all. You got plenty. You don't need more than they have. Now you see with the Jaden Akins injury already, you know that depth gets tested. But one of the things I think the roster has that allows this to be okay is um, pretty decent versatility. And what I mean by so you get a guy like Tyson Walker, who they're using a ton off the ball right now, who I think once Jaden Akins is back healthy, playing normal minutes, will be much more on the ball. So I think that is um, that gives you a guy you can use in a number of ways. And I think that's, um, you know, on the wing and, and, and the bigs, you know, you may, you may start Hauser and uh, Malik Hall together at the three and the four, and yet your closing lineup with those two guys might be at the four and the five. 
So there, there's just because of the versatility, um, I think that takes away some of the issues potentially with depth because what you know seven guys almost create what would be a, a ten person rotation just because they fill different roles. Turning as I'm sure you probably are aware when you do shows like ours one of the most interesting subjects for listeners is always recruiting and i think from what we've been able to uh to discern in recruiting going forward so we're talking about the 2024 2025 classes the current high school sophomores and juniors it seems that msu is more national in scope than we've ever seen from Tom Izzo. And anybody who's followed the program for a long time knows that Izzo's kind of formula has always been to have a more limited number of kids, generally from within a three to four hour radius of East Lansing, that he gets to know very, very well and works very, very hard. What do you think about the shift or the apparent shift, if, if, if we are in fact correct in that, in the way that Michigan State's going about recruiting? And do you think it's going to force Izzo to adjust or change the way that he's gone about recruiting as a process? Yeah, you know, it's so there are a couple things here. One, I think a lot of what Izzo does is reacting to the talent pool around him. And when Michigan has been a really flush state with like ideally he wants to keep everything in a four-hour radius that's his his sweet spot he thinks it's good for uh team chemistry he thinks it's good for the ability for families to be close-knit and be part of the program that's sort of the traditional thing he's done and when there have been lags in recruiting over time it's been when the state dried up as much as anything because his brand is is best locally right i mean in michigan he's he's a bigger deal than anywhere else and that's where he can often fend off uh, the Kentuckys and Dukes better than he can even going into Chicago, which isn't that far away or, or whatnot. So I, I think some, some of it is a reaction to the reality that you, you're just going to have to be more national. He's talked about that a little bit, that he knows that they're going to have to um, expand their recruiting base. I think that was one of the reasons for the the choice of a sort of a recruiting coordinator, a guy from who had been at Northwestern and recruited different types of players from different places when you're at a school like that. Um, but I, I I think ideally, though, he would still rather keep it local. I think the the, the other thing that is going to get really, really fascinating is because of the roster size um, con- concern. Like he he said the other day something about, uh, you know, he has no idea whether he'll bring in three transfers or none next year. And because he really has no idea how many guys will be back. And one of the things that'll be interesting to see also is uh, I think the, there will be a market correction a little bit on NIL, uh, a little bit on um, the transfer portal to some degree uh, as, as we get out of this period where all these players have this extra year of eligibility, which is um, really making things like everybody's got another year. Like you really don't know if you've got a senior or a redshirt junior right now. Right. Uh, so I, I think I think there are a lot of things right now that are are uncertain, and you start to see what's happening with Texas A and M and football, yep. where we're you know you pay players too early, and and Izzo is very wary of that, and there are a number of schools that are wary of that, and so the, whatever the reaction to that, you see the number of players, and he brought this up as well, and I'm glad he threw this number out there. I think there were 450 players 
who in basketball entered the transfer portal and didn't find a home. And so if, if you think about that, and, and ultimately there are going to be fewer scholarships available because Izzo and everybody else are going to leave two open. So fewer high school kids are going to get scholarships. A lot of kids are going to get left out in the cold. I do think there will be a little bit of a snapback where kids go, okay, maybe is it always going to be greener? I do think there will be mid-major kids looking to move up um, regularly because that's a different type of deal where you've got something decent in your own school. They'd probably love to have you back if you decided to stay, but you played yourself to a level you want to see if you, and, and, and you're leaving for reasons of seeing whether you can cut it at, at, at the Big Ten level. And I think those are the guys that coaches like a lot because they're not leaving because things didn't work out. They're leaving because things did work out. And that creates a different dynamic. So I, I think there's a lot to, I think there's a lot that that'll be fascinating over the next few years. But one of those things will also going back to the original question, what does Michigan have coming up to the high school ranks? It's a little dry right now, and that's why you're seeing more uh, of, of a national scope. Well, as a as a follow up to that, I, I want to play devil's advocate um, for just a second on one thing you said, uh, and and this is actually flows from a discussion that Eric and I had on our last episode when we were talking about recruiting. I, I think that's always been the perception, and there's a lot of reason why that, hey, Izzo's brand is strongest at home. He does best because he's built the program largely on the backs of Michigan and, to some extent, upper Midwest kids, right? We all know that. But I do think it was really interesting when you look at the class that they've just completed, the 23 class, that they got involved in two recruitments in Garrick Norman and Cohen Carr way out of the region and locked those commitments down in almost record time. And it was, it made me wonder in, in conjunction with a thought that I've heard posited by other people around basketball in Michigan, that sometimes actually it can be a detriment if kids have been around the state for their whole lives are intimately familiar with Michigan state, that it doesn't all the accomplishments of the program, the stature, et cetera, doesn't have the same glow about it, that it might be to someone who's not so intimately familiar with it. Um, do you think there's anything to that? Or are you still just convinced? No, nah, it's, it's primarily, you're going to have your most success with kids that are, are from this region because they know it so well. Well, I think, I think Izzo's stance has been that. It has been interesting to watch what they've done because I do think he has underestimated his brand at times. And and his brand, the brand is national. I mean, they're they're in the Champions Classic, right? right. They're, they're a bigger brand than sometimes. They know Joshua Langford came to them. And at that point, they said, you know, well, if you're going to do this, you got to be serious because you're in Alabama. And if we're going to recruit you, we're not going to waste our time going back and forth unless you, you're really interested in us. But I think they, they they've noticed now with – there's certain things they've learned. One is Chicago is a place you can't just walk into after being away. And so that was um, a hard lesson because after Shannon Brown, they really weren't around until Jabari Parker and those guys. And, and Chicago coaches just don't like that. You can't, you can't walk back in and they, they try to do that. Um, but I, I do think that's, that's, uh, it, it's worth testing that because Michigan, frankly, is losing it. It's either doesn't have great players or losing them to prep schools. Yeah. And so you, you need to test the boundaries of your brand. And, you know, Michigan has always had this. The University of Michigan has always been a bigger brand nationally than locally. 
Like so, like as somebody who's kind of come up in the the metrics and page view era of journalism in the state, I can tell you, Michigan basketball is eighth out of uh, an interest fan interest in this state between uh, Lions, uh, you know, uh, Red Wings, Pistons, Tigers, Michigan State football. Michigan State basketball, Michigan football, Michigan basketball. So the eight major sports in the state, Michigan basketball is eight and it's not close. And so, but nationally, it's the Fab Five. It's this right. brand. It's the, it's the swagger they've had. They, and they've always, for that reason, I think, had a, a you know a good national recruiting profile uh, more so than here. And here, toe-to-toe, though, with, with Izzo, uh, it hasn't gone as well. They haven't gone after a lot of the same kids when Beeline was there. Uh, but Beeline was able, they were able, that was one reason you were able to, both those schools um, have winning programs at the same time as they weren't going after the same kids. So yeah, no, I, 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 I your point's well taken. I think it's something they ought to test. And I think at this point, it, it's just pure necessity. And one thing Izzo showed this last with the 2023 class is that when he, when he locks in and he rolls up his sleeves and he says, I want this kid, he's still willing to outwork people at a level that pays off. Absolutely. And I, uh, the thing that, that just to put a bow on it, the, the thing that Eric and I discussed that I thought was really striking to me about the Norman and, and car recruitments is how quickly they happened from the point that they offered to the point that there was a commitment. And I was trying to think of the last Michigan kid that that happened with. And I think the answer I came up with, with Denzel Valentine was Denzel Valentine, which, you know, let's be honest, that one was kind of in the bag from the moment they, they made the offer for obvious reasons. Uh, but it, it just seemed so much easier than it does close to home. And I, there's gotta be a reason or multiple reasons why that was the case. But in any event, I think those recruitments were really striking to us the way that they played out. Yeah, And, I, and they may have, they may have just been an anomaly And the Valentine one Valentine actually looked at Michigan for a minute too. And the other thing about Valentine is he was, you know, barely a top hundred recruit. Right. So he wasn't as, as, as heralded as, as some of those, some of those other guys, but yeah, they're, they're, there might be something to it. And I do think that Izzo at this stage in his career, um, there's no reason not to test that brand and, and see what you can pull from, from anywhere in the country. And then I just wanted to follow up a little bit too. You mentioned the 450. We talked about this at our last episode as well. These kids who are, who, you know, as soon as you enter the transfer portal, your team essentially is going to replace you. I mean, I guess you can get, you can come back, but oftentimes the teams find other transfers if you're in the portal for a while. And I think it was, I think Rod, you're mentioning that Lindsey Hunter's son came up to Michigan State and had a visit uh, last yeah. week or something. And he's from Upper Mississippi Valley or something uh, like Mississippi that. Mississippi Valley, was, where his dad played. So he he played high school basketball in the Detroit area. I think he started at Southfield Christian, and I believe he ended up at U of D Jesuit. But good high school player, not a Big Ten level guy. At least that was the perception. Went to right. Mississippi Valley and had two pretty good years. Entered the portal in the spring. And I just happened to see a tweet a couple of days ago that he was actually a visitor last weekend at Michigan State. And then I followed up and did some looking around and I don't see where he's committed to anybody. And and it's October, almost November. <laughs> so- right. And, and, a, and, and my question, you know, then is you're saying things you think things will at some point find out, you know, water's going to find its level somewhere as far as what's going to happen with these kids. But I mean, there's a kid who is, you know, trying to move up and he's potentially i mean i suppose he is his situation he'll be fine as far you know he can afford to go to college and but there are a lot of kids who probably you know basketball is their ticket to get a degree and you know they may have the skills and they just for whatever reason you just don't find a place to land I, these kids aren't gonna you know, they may not graduate it's gonna cause some serious economic 
ramifications further on their life. I mean, how do you think this is going to end up playing out? You think it's going to take like four or five years? They made a they made a big mistake when this whole thing went down because they didn't have to do the, the the one year transfer right away. The NIL was coming; there was no way around it. Like that was going to be a thing. Um, but they could have pushed back on this. And the mistake they made was so you had sports like volleyball and other sports like that where you could already do it. And the the response, as long as that was the case, this was always happening. The response needed to be, you know what, you're right. In volleyball, you can no longer transfer without sitting out. Because an extra, if you're a scholarship athlete, now I believe walk-on should be able to play right away, but an extra year of free college should not be seen as some sort of detriment uh, if you're if you're going somewhere. And I believe in the, the, there should be a really clear-cut waiver system. The coach who recruits you leaves, or coach leaves, you're you're free to go without sitting out. You, that's not the contract you sign necessarily. Um, but so where it goes, I don't know if they, they're able to put that genie back in the bottle. That to me is not an IL though. It's an easier one if there's enough data over time. And I think where, where the pushback will really stem in the long run will be in the high school associations where there are fewer scholarships overall. If the data can show over a, you know, five or seven year period that it's like, cause you know, the, the thing that I think, you know, when the NBA went to not allowing high schoolers in, you know, and this is sort of the reverse of that ultimate freedom of doing what you want to do. But I never, I, you know, now look, it, it, it didn't actually serve the purpose that anybody was hoping it would serve. I think they're going to go, you know, go back to high schoolers eventually being allowed in the NBA. There could be a point where the data says this doesn't really work. The one-time transfer the way it is. I used to love the graduate transfer deal because to me at that point, you'd fulfilled your obligation to a school uh, or certainly whatever your side of the contract was. And, you know, even if you were doing it for basketball reasons, you should get a chance when you're 22 to be recruited differently than you were when you were 17. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying you shouldn't be able to transfer. I just don't think there's anything that hurts you about sitting out. And the other thing is, I, as somebody who loves mid-major hoops, this has destroyed that part of the game. And there is, and the game needs to be careful with that because, you know, you get all these big wigs in the national media who will talk about this idea. Of, well, you know, it's, it's Kentucky, it's Duke. That's fine. But the, the popularity of the sport is driven by 350 fan bases that have hope. Yeah. And if you take away 250 fan bases that no longer think the dream is alive to one day make that run or to build a roster or to catch a diamond in a rough, like when I covered Western Michigan University, you know, you they get a kid to be like, oh, wow, that, that kid could clearly play in the Big Ten. It was exciting. Now you had found something that you could build around for four years. Nowadays, he's there two years, he's gone. And so you can't do that. You can't redshirt kids there anymore because they'll leave, you know, because it, it's, um, so they have to be careful in that sense too, that the interest in the sport, if Southern Illinois doesn't believe it can get to a sweet 16, then college basketball is in trouble. And that, that's my firm belief. Yeah. And, and I think what it's really done, and, and this goes to the point you're making, is it's made even rarer that idea of the mid-major with, you know, four seniors and a junior, which is really where they can make up, say, whatever kind of talent gap there might be in a matchup with, with a high-major program. You just don't find those equations. That's why I think what Loyola had uh, the last couple of years is so exceedingly rare now at that level, because typically uh, if a guy really shows that he is a high major level talent as a sophomore, let's say, 
well, he's going to look to transfer up. The, the mid-major never gets the benefit of him as a veteran. And it, it really makes it tougher to have that, that competitiveness when they do get the opportunity to play a high major. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I would agree, it's robbing the sport of, of something that, that makes it great. And that's, 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 I think that's a real, I think that's a real concern. It's an underrated concern. And, and people always say, well, it's, you know, it, it's so be it. It's the kids. Well, you know, if the sport doesn't have value, the kids don't have value. Right. You know, the NIL stuff doesn't have value of the kids. And, and I think that some of this will start to, um, it'll get really interesting when, because for example, there are places that have um, lots of money at smaller schools where you have big time boosters, Wichita state, <laughs> Wichita state's one. I mean, look, the school I used to cover that was broke then, Western Michigan, has, you know, all the, the, the old uh, striker money and all that. They just gave $500 million to the school. If, if, if Bill Johnston and Rhonda Stryker want winning basketball at Western Michigan, they got more money than, than everybody but Matt Ishpia, baby. I mean, I mean, like, they can do what they want. You know, they, they can compete at a pretty high level. And, and you know, I've, I've got uh, friends who's, you know, who's uh, who care about mid-major schools around the country that would give – all of their inheritance to, 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 to see their teams win. So I, 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 and I think the other thing that has to be done though, if you're at those schools is you have to create a good experience and, and it can be a good experience for those players. And then you got to keep selling them that it's a, that, you know, it's not always greener. And the flip side of that though, is, you know, Tyson Walker should ultimately have the opportunity to see how much to, to, to live the big 10 life. And so, you know, you're torn on that. And, and, and the, frankly, Northeastern is not the same as, as Wichita State. Northeastern is a place that's going to play in front of a thousand fans in a hockey arena in Boston that doesn't care about college sports, uh, whereas you're a rabid fan base in the middle of Kansas. That's a different experience as well. That's very much a big Ten experience. And, and, you know, we're talking about the sport, too. There's a lot of talk about expanding the tournament. I I mean, there's so much talk now that I almost feel like it's inevitable at this point that there's going to be some sort of expansion, which is, of course, going to benefit Power 5 schools for sure. I mean, obviously, conferences are changing and, you know, the Big Ten's expanding, the SEC is expanding. And I think, you know, we're moving towards a world where there are going to be mega conferences. But how do you think that affects the, the sport and, you know, obviously the tournament, right? Like if you add an extra round to the tournament, even if, if you, you know, suddenly move to 120 teams or whatever it might be. What do you think that does to, to the game and to the you know the regular season and the the tournament itself? Yeah, you know I'm I'm against it and for it under one circumstance. So I, I don't I'm not somebody who likes change like that. I, I didn't like when the NFL expanded playoffs when I was in fourth grade. You know I was <laughs> wrote, wrote a little paper against it, and it's fine, right? So uh, you know I don't. There's oftentimes I'll argue against something that has I just don't like. I like what I have, and I don't want to I don't want to see it messed with, but. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, I think the NCAA tournament is special. It's the best thing the sport has going for it. And so you don't, you want to be very careful if you're going to expand it, the, the requirement in that expansion must be that every conference gets both their conference tournament as an auto bid and their regular season auto bid. If you include, if you include that and you'll have some that'll win both. Uh, if you include that to where, and that also, you talk about protecting the sport, now there's more value in the horizon league. There are two chances to get in. Um, and so how many extra bids does that, then at that point, you're probably creating uh, 15 extra low major and mid major bids and 15 extra high major bids. Then I don't hate it as much. 
But if it's all going to high major stuff, uh, then then it drives me nuts. But if if you're if you're truly rewarding people who've had great seasons or have that March, you know, and, and, and letting regular season champs in at lower level leagues, then then I can I can live with it. Turning back to Michigan State for a moment, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, a, uh, a point of consternation for a lot of Michigan State fans in the spring and continuing right up to now is the five position. You know, a lot of people, yeah, right. <laughs> with with a lot of people upset that Tom Izzo elected not to use the portal, and he's been pretty clear, I think, uh, during the fall as to why he didn't do that. I believe he was quoted as saying the other day, saying he just didn't like any of the options that were available, which was starker than I expected him to be, and in, in discussing it. Yeah. But I, I'm going to ask you to do a little projection here. We know what people think right now. How do you think we'll evaluate the five spot for MSU when we're looking back in April? What do you what do you expect is going to unfold over the course of the entire season at that position? Yeah, you know, and I I, I do think there were some decent fives out there. I understand where he's coming from. One, it's hard to get them. You don't know if they're going to be better. You recruit over your guys at this stage, you may lose them. And there's something to him doing the opposite, saying, I mean, maybe it creates some sort of bond. I'm, I'm banking on the guys I recruited. You're my guys. I didn't go try to replace you. And maybe there's an effect there. Um, the, the five positions interesting because I don't, we don't hundred percent know what they have there yet. Um, the Carson Cooper deal, no question long-term to me at this point was a heck of a find. I mean, he's a really good athlete. I think at minimum he'll develop into an excellent defensive big man who's is coordinated and and can finish around the rim and you know he's gonna be a really good player how much he contributes this year i don't know but he's gonna play um the Madi sissoko maybe three fouls in two minutes every night i you know and 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 we'll see what he's able to provide and and you hear things with like jackson kohler that i mean he is just wrecking sissoko offensively in practice to some degree like but um, but can he guard anybody right. and do they need that? You know, and what, what's, so what does the offense look like? And, and does a lineup with him and Hauser work, you know, right. and that sort of stuff, right. there's all sorts of lineups you have to consider what I would just from a basketball standpoint, be most intrigued to see is I think they have some potential real fun offensive lineups and I'd like to see them lean into them. And the problem is that goes again, like, They've got to be able to defend and rebound well enough for Izzo not to have a heart attack. And so, but like at the end, and I know Hall and Hauser want to be at the three and four to start games. I, I, I think they will start with that lineup because that's the easiest way to guarantee they're on the floor together at some point. The, I think you'll start with Sissoko. Sissoko by the seventh game is going to be brought off the bench because he's going to pick up three fouls in two minutes and then you lose him entirely like that is it, and so that's going to be a way to limit his his fouls but that would be my guess but i think to start the season you'll see sissoko you'll see uh hall and Hauser, and, and that's a pretty big lineup but i think late in games you're going to see hauser at the five some and he's he's looks he's trimmed down quite a bit playing very confidently but i don't know how well he can defend fives what I do want to say, well, we've seen it. It's not great against certain matchups. And early on, they play some tough center matchups. Yep. There aren't as many guys in the Big Ten to hurt you. But what? But it works still. If the counter is, 
you're going with a lineup that has um, at the end of games, Hall Hauser, both shooting well from the perimeter. Jaden Aikens on the wing, Tyson Walker and AJ Hogard. That becomes a difficult lineup for other teams to defend. Yep. And so they have to, you just have to be better on one end than you are bad on the other. Right. And so they, they've never been able to maximize that with Hauser because he hasn't had, he hasn't played with confidence at all times. I, I, I sense that he will, I think this is going to be a pretty decent year for him. He seems to be in an unbelievable headspace. Um, you know, I talked to him after the season last year and I had never heard him sound like that. Um, like it was a, just a different, I mean, I've interviewed him, you know, 30 times and that was just, it's, it, jumped out as different and so um i think that to me will can he maintain that place when he has a couple nights that things go wrong can he stay as a confident guy um i if he does i think he becomes a double digit score and a you know 38 to 40 percent three-point shooter who's a real problem for opponents on that end and then then that counterbalances some of this these issues at the five kohler though is going to be fun like i I think he, like, I don't know how good they're going to be at the five, but they're going to be interesting as hell. Like, I mean, they're, they're Kohler is offensively skilled, unlike any five they've had, really that I that I can remember. Now, Zach Randolph, I think you have to go back that far. I really do. He's and he's different than Zach because he can shoot, but he, he, Randolph didn't see the floor like him. Randolph can't sh- couldn't shoot from outside. Like right. you're right, he's got the soft touch around the rim. Randolph and Nick Ward were guys with their bodies were great at creating contact and finishing in close range, and, and really had an unbelievable touch and gift for that. Um, you know, Arazam Lorbeck maybe yep. if he had stuck That's around. That's a good one. One of those. Yeah. And you know, so it, it's it's going to be to see a sky that skilled, and what that allows if you have shooters on the floor, um, what that does for them, and. Um, I, so I'm very curious to see how it all looks and whether this coaching staff can maximize it and, and you know, play more of a Golden State Warriors type of basketball where the ball is moving and, you know, you're getting skilled guys. Well, I think they've got skill and I think it's a what's, – what's really interesting about their schedule is the schedule is, is nasty early. Um, but if you can get out of that first eight games like four and four, you're fine. It's really not that big a deal. Three and five, you're fine. You really are. I mean, this right. nobody's going to punish you for that schedule at the end of the year. And then the Big Ten, I think, is well, it's got decent depth, and and you could argue that like seven deep, I I couldn't tell you who's going to win it. Um, and they don't. Nobody at the top is great. Um, I think, and and there aren't big men that are really going to hurt you outside of Hunter Dickinson. And I don't know how that whole thing's going to work with him in that lineup. And so the. I think in the league that they'll actually be better off than they would a lot of other years. Yeah. I, you know, one thing we've, we've talked about a little bit here and you were alluding to uh, with um, talking about Hauser at the five. And, and I do agree. I think that's a really important point. You know, last year, I don't think other than very rare occasions, I can think about the Michigan game at Breslin where they were able to make a mismatch work in their favor. Um, but that certainly wasn't the case in the rematch in Ann Arbor um, and wasn't the case very often in other games. But you wonder with that extra year of maturity for Joey um, and, and maybe just a more confident together offense overall, if you know mismatches go two ways, Michigan State fans, after experiencing last year, I think got um, 
tend to look at it from the negative perspective that, well, we just don't have enough size or proven size to deal with these behemoths that other teams roll out there. But the counter is if you've got guys that can force those huge players to have to try to extend defensively, you can take advantage. And, and so I guess it's just, it comes down to seems to be what you were saying. And I would agree with this. Can Michigan state make mismatches work in their favor more often this year than they did last season? Cause they're probably going to be capable of, of generating them. Yeah. So no, they should be, they should be better. And, and you know, the, the hard thing for them early on, I think is going to be uh, like, I don't think that Jay Nakin's injury is a big deal long-term, but it's a big deal in November. And because it's just, you know, he, he's going to be, and, and I have no doubt he'll be in decent shape, but it's different than game shape. And he won't be playing the minutes he will eventually play. And he won't be the play. And so you're going to be playing like a real meat of your schedule type deal early on, still evolving as who you're going to be, which everybody evolves early. Nobody's usually the same, but it, it that, that part of things I think is going to be um, a little bit challenging for them. But uh, yeah, I, I, it's as interesting a roster is, uh, I mean, I, I like guys like Kohler. Like they're just fun for me. For just as somebody who likes basketball, I love that. And and I would be a horrible coach because, <laughs> I you know, eventually I'd have to figure out that I needed some defense and rebounding. But early on, I'd be like, oh, nope, that's that's the skill I want on the floor. Right. I don't understand why I'm losing 104 to 78, but I want that guy. On the floor. And uh, so yeah. just from a pure entertainment value, I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I, you know, one one other point before we move on. I, I saw that um. And I have to assume this came from sources in the coaching staff, although, you know, we, we, we have to be, I guess, a little skeptical of it. But I, I saw that the field of 68, uh, Jeff Goodman and Rob Douster's uh, podcast network had an episode on the Michigan State Tennessee scrimmage. And again, with the caveat for everybody listening, don't take too much from secret scrimmages, even the bits of questionable information you might hear. But. I did think it was interesting. They claimed that in that game, Matty Sissoko played 27 minutes, only committed one foul, which seemed almost as improbable to me as the sky turning green. But (laughs) it was it was interesting nonetheless. Now, the other thing was they said he only grabbed five rebounds. I would have bet if you told me he's going to play 27 minutes, he probably comes away with more than five rebounds by accident. Um, but it was, it was definitely interesting from a number of perspectives. I guess I'm, I'm very much in the believe it when I see it mold, when it, when it comes to, uh, something like that as well, but I, I did find it interesting. Yeah. And I, and, and I, I'd heard about that. I haven't, li- I, I actually like that podcast a fair bit, but I haven't, um, um, it was funny. They play that scrimmage during like Michigan, Michigan state football week, and they're able to catch most of the writers around here, not paying a whole lot of attention to, uh, to what's, what's going on. It's funny, you know, what's amazing about those scrimmages, it always cracks me up, is it wasn't that long ago that it was like, a, you know, a national um, security type deal. Like you you couldn't get information. Right. And them. And I don't, I don't understand why we didn't just call bull from the beginning. Like, what does the NCAA really care? What do we, why is this a thing? Why do people care that we know what happened in these scrimmages? And um, I, yeah, it, and like, well, um, I think Izzo is going to be available later in this week, and I he, I think he'll be pretty uh, blunt about what 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 happened. I, I am curious to see if Sissoko can be what they need him to be, which is a they need him to rebound, they need him to 
set hard screens, roll hard to the rim, and provide some level of rim protection. I would argue, I would argue less than he thinks, though. I mean, the thing about Sissoko is he is he. You can get him in the air, and that's where he commits fouls. Like he's a bouncy dude; he can get back up. He's not the tallest guy; he's only six eight. He's not as long as as people sometimes think. And um, so, you know, rim protection it works if you've got a knack for shot blocking. But it also, if if it's for him, it gets him in foul trouble somewhat. So that's gonna be something to watch. There are a lot of. Fairly, I think I would say kind of uh, concerning departures from Michigan State in the spring. You know, one was, of course, Max Christie. That sort of was a weird situation. We've talked about that in our show and sort of how he he departed and went to the NBA. But also Julius Marble, uh, that was understandable how he went for family reasons down to Texas. But and then, of course, Bingham and Brown uh, graduated. I get the impression and the feel from the, the fan base that no one's super concerned about any of these departures because they there's there are you know, parts to come in in their place. And you had a team last year that was okay. I mean, they weren't great, obviously. They were sort of middle of the pack in the Big Ten. Made the tournament safely, uh, but you're not, I guess, with a great seeding. But um, you'd expect in a Big Ten that's going to be a little bit weaker this season with you know more more flex that if you have a team you think is about as good or maybe a little bit better, that, you're good, that you should do pretty well. I mean, do you feel that's pretty accurate that the, none of the departures are – catastrophic or like really ones that can't be filled up with other current players in the roster? Yeah, they are. I mean, the, the, the Christie would have been a, a big return. Um, Cause I think he might've sort of discovered what he didn't have last year with this lineup and this, you know, some of the offense, I think they're going to be a better offensive team this year. And that's not because Max Christie's gone. Like if he had been around with this group, um, I think that would have, would have, could have been a big year for him. And, it might have really paid off for him. And now we'll see. I mean, he, he got a decent amount of guaranteed money, so they're going to be invested in him for a couple of years. He's down in the, going to be down in the G League. We'll see if that works out. Yeah, but I don't think um, – I mean, he didn't. He wasn't great. He wasn't as advertised, you know, in terms of um, offensively, offensive acumen. He was better defensively, and they put a lot on him. And I think that was, you know, some of his frustration. I think he did wear down a little bit. Um, but, yeah, when you look at the guys they lost, there isn't anybody that you go – I mean, they were a mediocre team last year, with and their starters were guys who were, you know, average to above average starters, and those guys aren't guys you can't replace through development. Like, there's nobody you go, boy, how do you, how do you, how do you replace that? And, um, and I, I think their excitement about Akins, like they, you know, going back to Monty Bates, they have loved Jaden Akins, and they have chosen Jaden Akins over anything else a couple times over, you know, and um, Izzo is, is careful with hyperbole to an extent. He gets caught once in a while though, you know, I mean, Joey Hauser is the next magic Johnson right. a bit much, or is it, but <laughs> I mean, every once in a while you're like, what, what is he, what's he doing? But, um, but largely they don't want to put pressure on kids that those kids can't live up to. And, and even if you have private conversations with the coaches, they're, they're, hopes for Jaden Akins as a player are incredibly, incredibly high. So I don't think they think he has a ceiling that's maybe even higher than Max Christie and they have for some time. And so I think that is partly why they're, they're intrigued about more time for Akins. They like his role expanding. Um, And, uh, and then frankly, it's, you know, I think the way Christie left, he left right away, wasn't around where it was like, that was done, you know, and, 
Um, so people move on quickly because it's that sense of, well, you don't want to be here, then fine. You know, so people quickly get over that. It's not this, you know, you look at some of the guys who hemmed and hawed, but um, really struggled with it. Adrian Payne, when he made that decision, Jaron Jackson, when he made his decision, uh, there have been some guys who have, have come back and uh, guys who have left where I think um, like Jaron Jackson, he comes back that, that next team wins a national title and he nearly did. And he, you know, he probably uh, wanted to, but I don't, I don't, but Max Christie would have helped this year. There's no doubt. And I, when I last year thought they were a two year group in a lot of ways, this being the better year, all of that was assuming Max Christie would be part of that and assuming they'd figure out the five spot. And so neither of those things are, are really settled as they go in. And now you look at the recruiting class coming in and people go, well, now it's a two-year group moving forward, even beyond that. Um, we'll see. I, I think you want to get the most out of every individual year because you never know in your years to year. Bringing it back then to the conference as a whole, which we, we've touched on a, a few times here, I, I definitely our perception aligns with where I, I gather yours is, is that unlike most seasons, you really don't have – a team anywhere in the big 10 that doesn't have legitimate concerns. There, there's nobody who appears to have all the answers like last year, for example, it didn't end up working out that way, but who could have foreseen that Purdue would have its worst defensive team in a millennium. Um, but, but that's what happened in the preseason. It looked like they were a team that had everything you would need to be a national contender. We don't seem to have anybody like that in this year's big 10. So how do you see the, do you have a feel for what you think is likely to happen in terms of the conference or it's, it's very hard because like Illinois is heavily reliant on transfers, right. very much a turnover roster, but an incredibly talented roster. And so that's sort of the opposite of what um, Izzo did, right? They went out yep. and just basically got a partially new roster. Uh, Michigan gets a huge boost with Hunter Dickinson coming back and probably the best player in the league. Uh, but a traditional old school big man who's got some limitations and how do you build around him and maximize that Indiana, you know, most returning talent, certainly got a five-star freshman coming in, um, but consistently underachieves. And I don't know that they're not going to underachieve this year. Like I wouldn't bet anything on Indiana. Right. Um, I actually like Iowa's roster having lost Keegan Murray. Like I, I, I like a couple of their other pieces quite a bit. And, and as much grief as I give Fran McCaffrey, um, he is the uh, antithesis of, of Kirk Ferentz. So uh, he is about <laughs> offense. And I'm sure in yeah. Iowa, they will be so relieved to see that team score. They will not care if there's defense in Iowa City this year. Um, that could be an entertaining team. Um, Ohio State's got some pieces I like. But nobody you look at and go, oh, that'll work. Um, but there are about seven teams that I wouldn't be surprised if they won it. Um, and I think the, it's, it's after that it starts to, you know, drop off yeah. a, a little bit. Uh, but, you know, it's going to be an interesting league. And, and, and I, I like years like this where you, you learn the league and it's new pieces and there's turnover. Um, it's fun. When, and, and, and the other thing is the league kind of needs it because, to me, the, the couple years of really behemoth big men that then failed in the NCAA tournament after great regular season success, th that the league doesn't need that to be what it is sort of its core it, it, right now. It doesn't need that to be its reputation because – the proof was that you get run around. I mean, the Zach Eady, I'm telling you, the three of us could run, you know, pick and roll offense and score on Zach Eady. That's why Purdue is so bad defensively is you can have a seven foot three guy. Um, but 
odds are there's, you know, there's something up with him and he's very, very slow. And, and when you're sick, when your six, nine guy doesn't move much better than <laughs> Trevion Williams. Yeah. It was a big problem. And, and, and Williams didn't, you know, didn't come in in shape. I mean, there were things that there were, 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 you know, that didn't work with that team last year uh, on a number of, on a number of fronts, but no, I think it's going to be a fun league. I think it's going to be a fascinating league. I wouldn't be surprised if there are, like, there are probably seven teams in the league, though, that I think going into the tournament have the chance before the season to be second weekend teams. Now, maybe only one of them will get there, maybe two or whatever. But what, what I mean is there are a lot of – at the end of the year, there may be nobody who's great, but you may look at the league and go, boy, that's a decent field they've just put in the NCAA tournament, though, and, and let's let's see what – and somebody might make a run there. Well, I think it's safe to say that you could safely sag off me. Uh, Zosakidi would have to come out and defend the, <laughs> the three-point arc. Uh, so um, give us your scenario for best-case scenario and worst-case scenario for Michigan State. So, like, is there? do you see it realistic that they miss a tournament, for instance, uh, that that actually – everything just falls apart? Or do you – I mean, what's the chance of, like, a Final Four run in this this uh, team as well? Or how, does you, how do you see that playing out if it, it does happen? To me, it would take some severe injuries to miss the tournament, um, which you know is, is is always possible. You never know in that year. But but outside of that, um, I just think there's too much experience and sweat equity in that roster to to do that. Like, I mean, most teams they face aren't going to have the seasoning that they have in college basketball. And being old in college basketball matters. And um, that, so that that's going to to me is going to get you you know, to, to be a tournament team, the ceiling to me depends on a, a number of things. One, it's, is there somebody on that roster that really elevates to become like a first team all conference guy? Is that AJ Hogard, you know, Jay Nakins, um, you know, is, is Joey Hauser consistent all year in, in a third team type all conference guy that is a double, if the, the Hall Hauser pairing, it, wherever they're playing, it winds up being, being, you know, what the best those guys can be. And Hall is consistent. I think Hall will have a good year not being platooned with, with, with Hauser all the time. I think he needs court time. Um, you know, th- I mean, there's a chance they're really good. The, the, the five spot ultimately. So, I mean, you can say guards win in March and guards win. And I, I believe that to a large extent, guards get you to the sweet 16 guards can, put you in contention to win the big 10. Um, they may have really good guards, but when you look at the teams that are still around and winning in the lead eight and the final four, usually they've also got really good bigs and guys who are um, at the very least are um, athletic can rebound and um, really fit into what that team's trying to do. North Carolina's had that, you know, there's just been a lot of at least one guy, and so for Michigan State, to me, to surprise and to be like a Final Four caliber team, not only does the guard play have to work and some other things have to come in, but somewhere in that five spot, they're going to have to be just better than anybody thinks. And I don't see – I just don't see how that's Mati Sissoko at the level that would need to be. Um, Jackson Kohler, I'm very curious about. I think he will provide things. For them, but I don't. I don't see how, as a freshman, defensively, he's at a level that allows them to do that. And so, 
I, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm I, what I'm not saying here is Carson Cooper is Michigan State's final four hope. I am not saying that. It's not that <laughs> but but what I mean is like for them to be that sort of team that, that had a real chance, I think he is the best of both worlds for them potentially down the road. If he wound up taking massive strides earlier where he was a guy who could play major minutes or at least important minutes, um, because there are things he can do uh, that are you go, oh, I mean, he's legit 6'11", right? He, he, uh, you know, he can get the ball and he can um, take two dribbles and dunk over you. Like, he's got some confidence to him in that sense. Uh, but he's also a freshman. But I'll tell you one thing I really liked about him. And, I, again, I think he's going to be their third center at the beginning of the year. I'm not – and I wouldn't put a lot of pressure on him. And I think um, there in these first few games, there might be games he doesn't play at all. But there was a practice um, we were watching where – he uh, he did something with a dribble handoff that was lazy, and Izzo got into him for it. And there was no sulking. There was no, he just nodded, tucked his shirt in, gets back in his stance as they start to run this play, spins and goes and blocks a ball at the rim. You know, like it wasn't even, it was like help defense that a lot of guys wouldn't even, so like immediately all good. Like there's a, there's a toughness to him to be a willingness to be coached, and it doesn't, you know, I don't think phase him um, that gives a guy like that a chance to grow quickly. And again, I, if I had to project his season, I would say it's, you know, under 10 minutes a game it's, you know, but if you're talking about what it would take to, in my opinion for Michigan state to short of all those, them finding like striking the perfect court offensively with different lineups and just being one of those, a team that really, really has it short of that. Um, you know, I, because, you know, one of the things when you look at like Michigan state, when they had AJ Granger, let's go way back. And, you know, he's not, I mean, he, he was, was a pretty athletic dude, underrated defender, um, but he was a shooter and, and, you know, he would, but, you know, they had guys like Andre Hudson, you know, they had guys who wound up being really good. And is there, you know, Malik Hall's not as long as like, is there anybody who can, I just don't see anybody on that roster who can, um, who I think is going to be able to defend and rebound at the level you need to do that. But um, I, that, I still think it's going to be a really compelling season, and 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 there's a chance they're they're really really good. Well, I I think it's an it's an interesting point about Cooper. You know, when I think back to certain MSU teams that have had that you know, that great kind of postseason success. If you think about Michigan State, its last Final Four team. Xavier Tillman goes from in the uh, in the preseason being the sixth man to being really their second most important player by the time, you know, Big Ten play rolled around and and clearly was critical to them getting through Duke and becoming a final four team. And then I go back even to the 09 team where Draymond Green, it looks like in the preseason, there's no role available for him. But boy, come February he just forced his way into the conversation and, and really was a guy that was in some ways extremely important to that team's NCAA tournament run. Um, you know, it seems to me like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that you're saying that kind of emergence from a guy who at least has the, the requisite physical tools to do it might be what it takes to take Michigan state from being a good team to something maybe a little better than that. And, and, I can I can see a lot of reason 
for that, for thinking that. Um, one, one other thing that I thought was interesting, I wanted to get your take on before we wrap it up, uh, again, concerning Cooper, because uh, it's something we talked about in our last episode. Uh, there were photos that were released from uh, by Tennessee's basketball program of the scrimmage. And so, of course, I was studying them as if they were the Zabruder film. Um, but one of the things I noticed was uh, there was a point in that game where Kohler and Cooper were on the floor simultaneously, which I would not have bet on uh, that we would ever see that. And I probably still would bet that we will never see that this season. But it did get us to start wondering, and I, I wondered what your take is on this. You talked about how good an athlete Cooper is, and, and that's what I've observed as well. Um, do you think it's possible that defensively he might be a good enough athlete and might be a quick enough study to maybe spend a four-minute stretch here or there defending fours? Or is that just off the table? It's a good question because sometimes they don't like, you know, when Thomas Kithier showed up, they had no idea. I mean, he got forced into a role when Nick, Nick Ward originally got hurt. I mean, he was just so much better than they realized. And and, and he was serviceable. And, right. and I think Cooper has a higher upside. But but sometimes you, you put somebody in those settings it's like, oh, wait a sec. He rolls to the right place. He, you know, he's where he needs to be. He's athletic enough. All that stuff works. And, and that's a great question. And, and you know, but when, when you say those two are on the floor together, you know, I think offensively, that's Kohler at the four. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I met. I met. Is and so, are either of them capable of defending? Yeah. No. It, it'll be it'll be matchup dependent. But I think that's something they're probably experimenting with. I'll be very curious to see in the exhibition game. And um, you know, they don't have a lot of time early on to play. The one thing you do have, you do have a game now against um, that Northern Arizona. Right. You know, at least. so it's not straight to the Champions Classic this year. And so there's a little bit of time to sort of figure out because I, I do think there's you know we talked about before the idea of uh you know who who can defend with hauser at the four like what defensively what are you in in, in certain settings and and, and are you going to get taken advantage of um you know i i'm I, I don't i don't know i haven't seen enough i've seen like three open practices to this point and and, I, and then i saw money ball and money ball is always dangerous because yeah. that's where i thought Tom Nairn was larry bird so <laughs> um you know it's 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 always tricky, but but there are things that come out of that that are real, and you have to sort of learn to differentiate what is and what isn't. And one of those things that was real there is Carson Cooper's not a stiff. Right. Like that was incredibly clear. And then it was also clear that uh, A.J. Hogard's jump shot is improved. Now, whether he hits him regularly on at the, at the Big Ten level, I don't know. But if he's a 32 33% three-point shooter with all his other abilities yep. – and that that creates problems for defense. That changes yeah. for him, right? So he doesn't have to be lights out like he was at Moneyball. Um, he just needs to be serviceable, um, and, and I think that changes the equation. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. And thanks so much again to Graham Couch from uh, Spartan Speak and Couch of the Rube podcast, which I again would recommend you check out and subscribe to. I uh, also like to remind you if you're listening to obviously listening, but if you to go to uh, our website and you can join our Spartan community there, you can join up, hop onto the forums and get involved in the discussions uh, with us. And again, that's at tffinots.com slash forum. It's a fr it's free to subscribe and to become a part of that discussion. But until next time, the final four is on the schedule. Go green. <music> At 
Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.